Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Great day, everyone. It's Carlos, a.k.a. CJ. I uh, want to welcome you to another edition of the Sears Report with London Paul. And then also, hopefully, V will be joining us here soon. I uh, do want to welcome everyone back to our, our primary YouTube channel. It's, it's, it's been a minute, but we're, we're, we're glad to be back. Uh, we've had a lot of questions in regards to where we've been, what's happened. And so just just a couple really quick a couple minutes just to remind everyone you know if you have not done so yet please go over to roguenews.com uh, bookmark that site all of our data all of our content will be listed there primarily uh, we're kind of using YouTube more as a, as a live stream platform and then just due to the amount of censorship everything taking place we will systematically decide which videos stay on YouTube and which ones the replays will be directed uh, to the site. So, so you don't have to think that YouTube, you know, purposely deleted a video off our playlist or anything like that. We are doing that on purpose, uh, just because we don't know what could be said that potentially could could trigger someone. So that's your safe bet, roguenews.com, and then also join our Discord channel, which is the Rogue News community. You can go behind the scenes with a lot of people that are in the chat room today. Uh, Vellus, um, uh, Crypto Cowboy, several people that are there. And uh, so without further ado, London Paul, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah, good. Well, yeah, morning, says CJ. Yeah, and good morning. Well, presumably afternoon and evening to everyone listening. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to avoid saying anything that or it is obviously a trigger to get banned again. And obviously because this is why the main channel has been out for how long is it? Is it it's two been months? since February. I don't know. Yeah, it was 60 oh, days. It was 60 oh, okay, yeah, two months. March. Yeah, yeah, it was a 60-day um, uh, hmm. removal. So, yeah, we just gained it back uh, yesterday. And uh, we, we did uh, Gus Demos yesterday, so we instantly took that down. <laughs> <laughs> instantly. We didn't even think about it. <laughs> but, Paul, I, I appreciate uh, you being on. And, again, we have our weekly program with uh, Paul uh, that we do on Thursdays at 11 a.m., uh, do, do me a favor, if you have not done so yet, please go over to theseriousreport.com. Also bookmark that site and find out about uh, Paul's uh, premium content, which are his daily podcasts uh, and very consistent daily release. Every, uh, every once in a while, you'll get a, a double podcast day, which I always enjoy. Um, so, and, and again, there's there's always systematically funneling, fundamentally uh, things that are happening in the, as the the monumental shift that's occurring, Paul. So, where should we start today? Uh, where should we start? I want to just briefly, because I, I keep making this point, and I, I want to stress the importance of this, because everyone always attributes, or a lot of people attribute, all the ills of the, the Western financial system 
to central banks and principally the Federal Reserve. Now, we're not saying the Federal Reserve isn't complicit in a whole bunch of things, but there's a nice historical context that shows from day one why effectively the Federal Reserve is not the, the, the fundamental problem and is in fact just a conduit for what I've said before, the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which is, of course, the U.S. Treasury. And there's a very nice sort of point in history that eloquently proves that, because everybody knows about gold confiscation in 1933, and they go, oh, but the Fed confiscated gold. But what they then don't necessarily attribute to what subsequently happened was the, the U.S. Treasury took all the gold, which meant the Exchange Stabilization Fund took all the gold because the Exchange Stabilization Fund came hot on the heels of the Gold Reserve Act. And I'd also point out, bear in mind, the Exchange Stabilization Fund was created in 1934. Who was the U.S. president in 1934? Even 1934 was FDR. So we have to be extremely careful how we frame the context of, of FDR's presidency in that context, because as I've said before, the ESF is the dark heart of the U.S. financial system, is the dark heart of everything. And it's the one thing, ironically, that is very rarely discussed, and certainly not in mainstream media, but even in the alt media, no one talks about it. But that is the fundamental problem where, where everything resides from, from that point in its uh, creation in 1934 going forward. And it's extremely important to mention this because the idea, well, if we shut down the Fed, the Fed that resolves the problem. Well, A, it doesn't resolve anything. And as I've said before, be very careful what you wish for, because if you shut the Fed down tomorrow, the entire Western financial system will collapse because there are critical functions central banks have to undertake. And if they don't, mayhem will ensue. And as I've always said before, be careful what you wish for in wanting everything to collapse because you might not like the outcome of what happens in, certainly in the short term as a result of that. So I think it's a point I have made before on here, but I think it's a point worth making because as ever, it's a critical juncture in history which, which proves categorically why the Fed is the one, you know, who dictating policy decisions. The U.S. Treasury is via the Exchange Stabilization Fund, and that has remained the case from its inception in 1934 to where we are today. And I know there was a point where during the Trump presidency, people went, "Oh, look, see, the the the, the, the Treasury is taking control of the Fed." No, that was always the case, and that has always been the case, as I said, since that point in time. So important to mention these very critical. Uh, things that happen in history, which you know, proves the reality of what and who controls the U.S. financial system, and by extension, of course, uh, you know, the, the the U.S. dollar. Yeah, very well said, Paul. And and in part to that monetary policy and the things that were taking place, and I think that's one of the reasons why we witnessed big business, uh, the banking, uh, finance sector you know, really looking to advance the Democratic Party in terms of giving them a full mandate this past election cycle to basically participate, to escalate monetary mayhem and just printing trillions and trillions upon debt, Paul. It's just 
unreal at this point that we're considering another two trillion dollars for who knows what. Yeah, but the 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 point of fact is there was no choice but to do that because the alternative is if you don't print all this money, the United States will collapse and and contrary to you know popular conventional wisdom in in the alt media is they're deliberately engineering a collapse well the point is if they wanted to do that they would have done it in 2008 because at that point in the whole sort of global geopolitical cycle russia was considerably weaker Je uh, sorry china was the belt road didn't even exist in 2008 I mean, there were some embryonic ideas about it, but China was not in the ascendancy the way it is. Southeast Asia wasn't, and therefore that would have been the perfect opportunity to collapse uh, the system if that's what they wanted to do, which, of course, they don't want to do. And the reason they've spent the last decade may, trying to make sure that doesn't happen and failing abysmally is because once it's gone, it's gone. You can't destroy the dollar, and then magically turn around to the world and say, oh, well, don't worry, we've got a new dollar. And one of the principal reasons why, why the dollar is failing is because the world is rejecting it. And the world doesn't want to trade the same way as it did, and the dollar is losing confidence. And that's ultimately what will destroy the dollar, is a lack of confidence. And that comes about not just through the U.S. trying to weaponize the dollar, which it's done even more so in the last, well, certainly in the Trump presidency. I mean, they, but it started during the Obama presidency where they just sanction everybody and anyone who doesn't agree with them. And Trump carried on, well, his administration did, and Biden showing no let up in that. Surprise, surprise. So that's one reason why, you know, the world is getting sick and tired of it. But also the world's looking at the US going, well, hang on, you're just printing trillions and trillions of dollars. That creates nervousness in, in global markets and in, uh, nations who are saying, we're not exactly sure we have confidence in the dollar anymore. And it's quite interesting that the Russians, the Kremlin came out today, ironically of all days, and, uh, and made that very point by saying the dollar share of global trade will fall once people begin to doubt its stability. And that's the point I've made for a number of years. That's already underway. And what does destroy the dollar ultimately is a loss of confidence at the level of critical mass. And it's not a question of, is that going to happen? It's when it's going to happen. And again, we're not here with a crystal ball. And we're not going to say it's happening next week, next month, because it doesn't work like that. But with regards to the points you make uh, with Biden, I mean, there was this kind of stim, so-called infrastructure bill which was something like 2.2 trillion dollars which was let's build a bunch of bridges and and, and railways and ports and uh, let's copy what china's doing but actually we don't really have any strategy as to why we're doing this i mean we're just building something it's like a sort of keynesian experiment on steroids and the point is if you're going to do this there has to be a structure there has to be a reason for doing it and if you don't have a manufacturing base to, then you're just basically saying, well, yes, it's a recognition the US infrastructure is, is an appalling state and that decades of neglect. So you're going to spend $2.2 trillion plus just trying to recover lost ground for the last you know, 30, 40 years of, of total neglect in US infrastructure. 
And now they're proposing this 1.8 trillion, which is supposed to be to, you know, for, you know, childcare, et cetera, et cetera, which again, you may argue is a laudable thing to do, but question is, is it going to stimulate any economic growth in the United States? And the answer is no. So you've spent $4 trillion straight off of printed money to achieve no real economic objective. And you, know, you can say, well, the US economy has grown 6%, but you know, how, how many trillions of dollars have you printed, which you know, arguably you've already printed 10, 15% of US GDP uh, to achieve no objective. So it's one of those things where you can claim, and it's arguably questionable just to what extent the US GDP figures is actually has any meaning. But even if you attach meaning to it, you're effectively printing for every dollar you print, you're getting what five cents of economic growth, if that, or no growth. You know, you're effectively you're having no growth whatsoever, and it and it's totally disproportionate to the to the num to the printing you're doing. Whereas, if you're going to print dollars, you have to generate economic growth, so you're actually having sustainable growth through doing this. But at the moment. There's no indication whatsoever of that being the case. And this is kind of a Biden administration's reaction. And what, what he came out with and said, uh, was it yesterday was, you know, that, uh, that, you know, that Xi Jinping's is deadly earnest on becoming the most significant consequential nation in the world, which isn't true. That's not what China's trying to do, but he's going, well, you know, we're in competition with China. And other nations in the world, because we, you know, we we have to be the greatest nation in the 21st century. I mean, at what point does the United States realize that's not the future and how the world will function and operate? You know, if you want to operate in some dinosaur mentality, then you're going to be you're going to be extinct very quickly. And the world's moving on doesn't want a world that operates that way. So the idea that you're trying to convince you know, the, the, the American people, that this is an act of patriotism and, and somehow we're going to, we're going to spend all this money and we're going to make America the greatest nation on, on planet Earth again. And, uh, and he did actually say, ironically, that Xi, he goes, another autocrats think that democracy can't compete in the 21st century with autocracies because it takes too long to get consensus. Well, in, a, in an ironic sense that, Biden's correct, although referring to China as an autocracy is not an accurate description, but we're not here to, to dissect what China actually is. And at the end of the day, it's none of the things the West assumes it to be, but what it's a, Biden is... It's a, hey, Paul. I'm, I'm, oh, uh, hi. You know, I'm you. sorry, guys. I, I was on a very important call, and I completely lost track of time, and my phone was not near me. So when TJ was uh, texting me, I had no idea. My notifications were turned off. And I was like, holy crap, it's 11.18. Oh, my God, CJ. I was thinking it's like 10.18. I thought I was literally an hour behind. I'm losing it. I, I apologize for the lateness. No <laughs> Dude, I'm, the worst. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I apologize, guys. But, yeah, China's a meritocracy, Paul. That's it. Yeah, and so <laughs> so he's right in the sense that you can't compete because China makes long-term plans and the U.S. political system is geared around this crazy four-year cycle, which actually achieves nothing. Nothing of substance, and, and, and we've yeah, seen the, yeah. the true testament of this right during the whole entire pandemic nonsense. We, we've seen the entire testament of literally Western governments falling to pieces. 
Yes, and you know, and, and unfortunately, and people are gonna like some people are not gonna like me saying this, but it's because of crass incompetence, not some nefarious plan to do anything of the because in reality, as I keep stressing, if there's a nefarious plan to collapse the West, well, when the West is collapsed, it's gone. You're not you know because how's the US dollar survived? The US dollar survived because of global confidence. It survived, okay, part because they've coerced and threatened other nations that if you don't trade in the dollar, there'll be serious consequences. Yeah, and they, and, and they also, and, and they also, etc. Right, and they also overinflate their own GDP numbers to make it look like the U.S. economy is a lot bigger than it actually is, and it's more liquid than it actually is. So people are duped into utilizing the dollar and thinking that it's some sort of a useful asset in order to leverage currencies, and it's stupid. It's not. None of those things. It's ridiculous, and, no. that, and, and that charade has fallen off. Thank God, Paul. Thank God it's happening. Yeah, but of course, and that's the point. Once it's gone and the confidence is gone, no one's going to trade in the dollar, and they're most certainly you know, not going to go, oh, hang on, the dollar's collapsed, the West's collapsed. But don't worry, the U.S. will come back with a new dollar, and we'll all start trading with it internationally. Of course, yeah. that's not going to happen. <laughs> so there isn't a desire to collapse everything. I mean, I made this point before you came on, and and I've said this before, you they, you don't intentionally collapse something when you could have done it in 2008 and it probably would have actually had more mileage in trying to do it then. But you, you spend 12 years trying to prevent it, but then suddenly you want to do it. I mean, it, it's, it's totally illogical. And I'm sorry to say it's often nonsense. There is no way the, the West is going to deliberately do anything. And it's even now knowing that, that it's in this point of, of terminal decline and collapse, it will do everything to try and uh, convince whoever, I'm not sure anymore who's, who Powell's trying to convince by going, one minute we can't, we can't get 2% inflation. Then it's, well, we can have 2% inflation over, over a period of time, which averages out at 2%. So if it goes to 3% for, for a period of time, it doesn't matter. And now it's when we have got inflation, they're going, no, it's transitory. That's <laughs> what's transitory. <laughs> Make up your mind. <laughs> yeah. It's transitory ten years in a in a in a century. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Well, and, yeah. Our 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 inflation in this country is fluid, like the three thousand genders that are fluid as well. <laughs> so, but the point is, by then Biden comes out and going, it goes. Without understanding the technological advancements that are going on, not just in China, but in Southeast Asia. And he's going, we're going to have to develop and dominate the products and technologies. Of the uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, I mean, talks, do you see the talent coming out of American universities, Paul? We're going to dominate. I mean, he talks about electric car batteries and computer chips and clean energy. I mean, the clean energy thing is. It is so utterly ludicrous, and we made this point before that you know they, you you want to have electric cars, and you're going to have all these uh, charging points uh, everywhere, and how that is going to cripple the electricity grid in the United States. So, how much money you're going to have to spend a trillion dollars, two trillion dollars upgrading the U.S. power grid, and and the problem is you you can have all these um, electric cars, and what are you going to do with all the batteries? Uh, which is they an environmental that issue. That's and then the other point problem. is, yeah, then the other point is to, to allow you to have all these electric cars at the moment, you're going to have to produce, create a lot of dirty energy. 
<laughs> to allow you to do it. So I mean, it's just people don't think like that. You know, oh my god, this is all part of that binary thinking that most people are trapped in in in, in the West, predominantly in this country as well. Man, it's just we're going to make electric cars. Okay, do you realize it takes it like it takes almost twice the barrel of oil in order to make electric cars as opposed to the traditional internal combustion engine? Did you know that? Oh no, I didn't know that. Where the hell do you get the lithium from, the cobalt, the vanadium, the gallium, the infium, these things, the iridium that you need in order to get you, you, and to make these stupid batteries? Where, do you, where are you going to get it? The circuitry, the, all that. And we're going to develop those industries. You cannot in 25 years or 50 years with the systems that we have in place here could even develop anything remotely close to what you would need. It's impossible. It's impossible. But yet they don't understand that. Well, that's a bit like ahead, the U.S. going, well, we, we've suddenly recognized we've got a problem with rare, rare earth. But don't worry, we'll just we'll just build plants here and we'll do it all. And someone's gone, hang on. Even if you can find the stuff, which which you might do or you might not do, it's going to take you 20, 25 years. So for the next 20 years, you're still reliant on China. So, so you might want to sort of moderate <laughs> your attitude towards China because if they cut you off, then, then you're in big trouble. And... And yes, you know, there is this argument. But they need us to buy their stuff, Paul. <laughs> yeah, even though China's rotating its economy away from making all the cheap stuff. So it's kind of amusing when people go, well, look at what's happening in China. They, you know, they're, they're moving operations out of, out of China into, I don't know, Vietnam or somewhere. And well, they don't realize this is they're still keeping the operations in, in China in some cases, and they're just diversifying operations. But also the Vietnamese have said to the Chinese, well, you can bring your operations here, rebatch it, and then you won't be subject to tariffs. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, this is reality. You know, let, let's, let's, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it, and the West it, sat there, or the US yeah. is sat there thinking, you know, this these uh, sanctions, uh, tariffs policy worked. The trade war was the most stupid thing Trump ever decided to implement in, in any U.S. Policy, foreign policy decision. I'd argue it's the most stupid, ridiculous thing any it, president It, it is, ever because you, the, biggest, the biggest glaring hole in the head throughout the entire argument is this. Well, we're in a trade imbalance. There's, a, there's an imbalance in trade. There's a, uh, we're in a trade deficit. Folks, the reason why you have a trade deficit is the proof in the pudding that you do not have a physical economy. You do not have a physical, as long as you don't have a physical production-based economy, you will always have a trade deficit because you have nothing to trade with, nothing of value to trade with. So, of course, there's going to be an imbalance. It's the most stupidest thing in the world because you decided to make all, your economy all about services. Services don't mean production. We're going to make it all about financials. Financials and finance, uh, dr you know, derivative products do not equal production. So you're always going to be in a trip. But nobody wants to explain that, Paul. No, and the other thing is people, you know, China didn't make you, the U.S., uh, you know, export its manufacturing base by gunpoint to China. The United States did it voluntarily and wanted to do so. And why? Because the corporations can make far bigger profits by using a cheap production and, and labor costs in, yeah, in they, China or Southeast thought, Asia. And they thought that they could be, you know, they're just vassals. 
They'll, they'll, they'll pay tribute to us, Paul. We'll make them vassals who will make our cheap trinkets for us for the rest of their lives. That's what they think. And the truth is, when, when they did, when, you know, during the Clinton era, the old administration, they, they did this. China went, well, this is ridiculous, but thanks very much for, for you know, for boosting our economy and, and ultimately crippling your own. Well done. I mean, that's a great move, but your choice, you want us to do this. So, yes, the, the, the proof is, or the pudding is, the U.S. needs to move its manufacturing base. But the other idea that you can tell everyone just to, to, to drop their tools in, in Southeast Asia and move back to the United States, as Trump seemed to think would happen, of course, is nonsensical. It was never going to happen. And, and, and the other thing is for people living in the U.S., you know, okay, in one sense, it'd be great to, to bring everything home. But there are enormous problems in doing that, not least, as we said, because of wages and uh, labor costs and production costs. So if you if you want to spend, pay you know, 50% more for all your items you're buying now because they're made in the United States, well, are you going to be able to afford to do that? And the answer is no. So there has to be some huge sort of dynamic shift in terms of U.S. Uh, economic policy, the, the whole future of the dollar, and, and there are consequences in massively devaluing the dollar and how, what that means for the future of the United States. There's no simple answer. So when Biden comes out and goes, well, there's no reason why we can't manufacture blades for wind turbines in, uh, in Pittsburgh instead of Beijing. Well, there is, yes, in principle, there's no reason, but in reality... Of course, there is a huge reason, and and it's just the old the whole cost metric again. So, good. Good. Go on. No, I was just going to say that you know there's 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 one thing that's very important that's fundamentally missing, and and that's the fact. No matter where you stand, and those that are in the chat room, whether you're anti-China, you're anti-Russia, no matter what it is, is that. The United States always has, has to have their boogeyman that you will never hear a federally elected official or anyone from the U.S. government blame ourselves for our problem. Have you guys ever noticed that, that there's never one adult conversation about who's to blame? Yep. And it's fundamentally the federal government. And we never hear that. We're always quick to blame someone else. Why? Because it's easier. It's propaganda. It feeds into the emotional state of, of most individuals, whether they, they can now hate China, hate Russia, and all that stuff for Americans' problems that we created. Well, well, we'll look at, yeah, and you, it's a great point you make, CJ. I mean, look, look at Ukraine. What caused Ukraine's problems of today? It was the Obama administration who were responsible for the Maidan in 2014. Why? Because they wanted to cripple Russia's economy, and they also wanted to cripple Russia and uh, and try and get them bogged down in, a, in in their Vietnam. Well, of course, Russia didn't respond to it. And in fact, Russia's economy benefited, and Europe suffered enormously. But here's here's the legacy of what you have now. And where was the you know we we seem to have forgotten that Nazism was defeated in World War Two. But what do we have? Uh, yesterday there was a march. In Ukraine, with far-right nationalists, basically Nazis, to celebrate what they termed the legacy of the SS Galicia. That was a World War II Nazi infantry yep. division. So yep. there you have, that's the legacy of the But United that's okay. Their, their uh, Jewish comedian president is now leading a gaggle of Nazis, neo-Nazis, the Svoboda, uh, to war yeah. and, in the Azabri. And, 
Worse, <laughs> worse the condemnation of the Nazis uh, are running amok in Ukraine from the West. Not. Deadly sign. Well, actually, I have to say, I think that yesterday in respect of this uh, this march, the main opposition party in Ukraine uh, protested and condemned it, and so did the German embassy in Ukraine. But where's the United States condemning that? I mean, and this is, this is I'm so, well, you know, sorry no. to say, you know, we, we have to start looking at things objectively and look at what Western foreign policy is doing around the world. And Ukraine is a classic case of a nation that's now a basket case. It is an economic disaster. It is a societal disaster. It's got an ongoing civil war, which, which, and the U.S. caused this. The U.S. was responsible for this. Things didn't un, uh, unsurprisingly turn out the way they they expected because it was, because Russia is not going to fall for a, a ludicrous uh, attempt to drag them into uh, into a perpetual war. And if people think Russia's involved in Donbass, well, if they were. The war would be over in 24 hours, and they'd, they'd, and if they wanted to, they'd end up being Kiev, and the West would do absolutely nothing about it. But of course, it isn't. There's no point in actually doing that. But that proves the reality: Russia isn't meddling in Donbass. But this is symptomatic of the problem. So, where's, where, and where, where are people condemning the, the neo-Nazis running amok inside uh, Ukraine? Bear in mind, we're supposed to have defeated Nazism uh, because of the evil nature of what Nazism was. But apparently Nazism can thrive in Ukraine. It's absurd. It's embarrassing. And it's disgraceful. Uh, it truly is. And, 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 ma and masterfully played by uh, the real person who plays uh, 3D chess, which is Vladimir Putin, um, the leader who, who I'm calling right now the leader of the free world. Well played. Because what happened? Zelensky blinked, NATO blinked, the U.S. blinked, right out of Ukraine, and they backed down. And 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 Paul, what is often forgotten? How many times has Poroshenko called Putin and said, "Hey, listen"? And same thing with Yatsunyuk. said the same thing. Hey, you guys, you want Donbas? Take the Donbas. We'll give it to you. And Putin said, "No, it's your problem." <laughs> Well, yeah, well, yes, I, because but, because Ukraine to Russia is nothing but a little tiny rash, a little pimple on its rear end, but the Donbass to the Ukraine is a festering septic wound. There's a difference. So it's your problem. It's your time. You deal with it. Any sort of unilateral discussions you want to have, you could have it with you and I. But if you want to talk about Donbass, why don't you talk to the leaders of Donbass? And Donetsk individually, as per the Minsk agreement, which you signed. Checkmate, checkmate. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, and, and ultimately, Putin knows that, that that Ukraine will never survive, and Donbass will either become an independent republic anyway, or it will choose through a referendum that the West will have an, an aneurysm about, like it did. It will go Crimea. To, yep. to, to 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 you know, cede to Russia. Anyway. Bingo. But the other point is when Zelensky realized that, you know, that yes, the West had blinked, the U.S. blinked, and NATO blinked. He's now going to to Putin. Well, can we can, first off can we can we have a meeting uh, somewhere in Donbass at your you know wherever you see fit? And now he's going. Well, can we have a meeting in the Vatican? You know, on neutral territory. I mean, it's, yeah, Vatican neutral territory. Yeah, it's. <laughs> 
it's the gigantic climb down because at the end of the day, there's a realization that, uh, that, you know, it's what I called the U.S. foreign policy now is the emperor with no clothes. For, for decades, everyone thought the emperor had clothes and now increasingly the world's going, no, the emperor doesn't have clothes. And we've seen the emperor doesn't have clothes because of the, because of what's happened in Syria, what's happened in Ukraine, what happened, uh, it, I mean, with regards to nations going, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. We're not going to have you sticking your NGOs in our nations, uh, causing, you know, meddling. And every time you don't like a leader elected or you don't like uh, you know, the foreign policy attitude towards the United States, uh, then, then we're just going to activate these NGOs. We're going to say it's a pro-democracy movement that's developed in the nation and overthrow leaders. And we saw the failure of that in Belarus. We saw the failure of, of that in, and they tried it in Venezuela. We've seen the failure of it in Nicaragua, Cuba, and we could carry on because the US is constantly meddling all over the world, trying to destabilize nations. Of course, so, of course. Yeah. Paul, did, I don't know if you got a chance. I mean, I, I was late to the show, but I don't know if you got a chance to talk about what happened in uh, Syria, the situation uh, with Israel, and uh, what the Russians and the Iranians have done this past weekend was just simply glorious. I don't know if you got a chance to touch base on that. Yeah, not yeah, but I I discuss, I'm happy to discuss it. I covered it in some detail on my own podcast, and sure, effect, but happy to discuss it. Yeah, effectively, what because the United States during the Trump administration created what was called the Caesar Act, and effectively that was designed to literally starve the Syrian people into submission because the war option was no longer viable. Russia had seen that. Uh, the U.S. attempt to to overthrow Assad was failing. So the other option is, okay, what do we do? I know, let's starve the people because that way we'll get rid of Assad that way. And there has been, you know, significant amounts of suffering in terms of people not being able to to feed themselves properly. But the Syrian people are fully aware of that Assad is not the problem. We had the U.S. Uh, actually allowing so-called moderates to burn wheat fields in Syria. So to try and obviously stop uh, the Syrians having their wheat production to feed their people. So you're absolutely right. What did Russia do together with Iran? Well, first off, the Russia provides uh, a warship support for incoming Iranian oil tankers deliver Bingo. millions of barrels of oil to, because obviously the US as well try, is trying to take control in northeast Syria of the oil fields. Again, there was an arrangement between the Kurds and Assad where they'd sell the oil and Assad would get a percentage of the oil, uh, the, the revenue. And of course, that was stopped by the United States. So what they've done is they've circumvented that problem by getting uh, oil shipments which uh, into Syria through Tartus on the Mediterranean coast. And the benefit of that is, obviously, that alleviates a lot of the problems they're having in terms of oil supply. The other thing it is, is by the Russians having a convoy of warships to protect it, Israel and the United States have been told, if you lay a finger on these Iranian oil tankers, we will we will take immediate action against you. And they've backed off and done absolutely nothing. Why again? Because the emperor has no clothes. What? You what mean you to tell me the, the exceptional nation, the 
indispensable nation, the city on a shining hill of trash, did absolutely nothing. Well, what a surprise. In, in America, Paul, we call that being bit slapped. Well, and the other thing is, what did Russia do? Because it has, every year it massively increases its wheat production. It brought a load of wheat in, and, and I said once again, if you if you lay a finger on this, then you're declaring war against us in Russia. So all the wheat supplies are going in, which is feeding the Syrian people. And again, the emperor has got no clothes. And it's and it was for me, it was always a point where I remember 20 years ago going, why don't nations just call the United States as bluff? Because they only ever intimidate what are perceived to be weak nations. As soon as a nation that has any strength stands up to them, they back off. Or ironically, a nation that has, they at least perceive has a nuclear threat, which of course is why now North Korea launches missiles whenever it sees fit. And the United States goes, well, it's nothing. We, we don't need to worry about that. Well, three years ago, they nearly started a major global conflict by threatening to to launch a preemptive strike on North Korea, which, of course, the Chinese and the Russians told me wasn't going to happen. And they quickly disappeared and never to, to even mention the possibility of it happening. And three years later, he just launched, Kim Jong-un launches missiles whenever he sees fit. United States does nothing because he knows that if you've got the perceived threat of a nuclear deterrent, the United States then will leave you alone because the emperor has no clothes and it doesn't want to actually challenge a nation who poses a serious you know, uh, systemic threat to U.S. forces, be it in the South China Sea or the U.S. itself. And that's another reason why you want to talk about spectacular foreign policy failures. United States leaving the JCPOA was equally as idiotic as the trade war. And the reason it was idiotic was it handed the initiative to Iran. It, it said to Iran, okay, you can effectively now walk away from the JCPOA because we've walked away from it. And and what has Iran done incrementally, it's, it's, it's walked away from it. Now it's enriching uranium at 60%. It can enrich uranium at 90%, which is weapons grade. Everyone can have an aneurysm as much as they want inside uh, you know, the Congress. Uh, but, it, but Iran will just keep doing it. Why? Because the U.S. can't take the risk. And also the U.S. knows, as Trump found out at the last minute when he suspended a preemptive strike on Iran, that the consequences for the United States would be dire. So they went, oh, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Again, the emperor has been found out that it has no clothes. Right. And, and the consequence now is that, and rightly so, the U.S. needs to rejoin the JCPOA. So Iran stops enriching uranium. It actually says to Iran, uh, okay, we're going to roll back all the sanctions that we put in place during the Trump administration. And what's the latest development? The US is now talking about unilaterally rolling back the, the sanctions or a fair percentage of them that it imposed during the Trump administration because it realizes it's ludicrous. Because here's the other thing. You can sanction Iran as much as you want. And then Iran goes, Oh, by the way, we've just signed a $600 billion uh, deal with the Chinese. And by the way, we can export our oil to, Ch to, to, uh, to China, and you can't do anything about it. You can't sanction us because it's outside the dollar system. So Iran, as soon as they signed that deal with China, the United States sat there and went, 
we're screwed, isn't it? <laughs> we can't cripple uh, Iran economically anymore. There's nothing we can do. Okay, so we're just going to have to kind of admit we did something wrong, but we're not going to hold our hands up and say we were wrong. We'll just crawl back into the JCPOA. Uh, uh, and Iran knew all along that was always going to be the outcome. So it, ironically, the U.S. action is actually made, from, okay, from the from the U.S. perspective, and that's how we have to look at it, made Iran significantly stronger in the region. You're now seeing not only normalized relations in recent years with Iraq, with Iraq, what do we see now? MBS is sat there going, I want normal normal relations with the, with the Iranians. So it's handed all the initiative to Iran when if the US had stayed in it, they could have been in a position to say, okay, we don't like this agreement, but we, we're not going to leave the agreement and then have the audacity to leave the agreement and say to the Iranians, but you still need to stick to the agreement. Well, hang on, you left the agreement, so you're in no position to dictate what we can do in terms of rolling back the embargo on arms. And when that came, push came to pull, um, the United States was humiliated because every other nation said to them, you left the agreement, you can't insist on retaining the embargo on arms. So that doesn't exist anymore. And what can happen? Of course, Iran can buy missiles and technology from any nation, and principally, of course, Russia and China. So it was a very foolish mistake. Another example of a very hot-headed decision made with no thought of the consequences of the actions. And this is something the United States somewhat, somewhere inside the Beltway needs to sit there and go, do you know what? We keep making the most horrendous foreign policy decisions. We're handing the initiative. If they want a competition, even though the world shouldn't be a competition, and the world doesn't want to be, but if they want to have a competition, stop handing the initiative to China, to Russia to Iran and any other nation because every foreign foreign policy decision you're making, you're just handing the initiative to them. And we said at the time they were ludicrous decisions and, and I got all the people getting in touch going, you just hate Trump. I said, no, I'm just pointing out to you, this is a foolish po policy decision. What a surprise. Of course it was a foolish policy decision because the story that was sold to people was uh, about what Obama did in terms of the JCPOA and the agreement was just political nonsense. It was the only thing the Obama administration did that was actually intelligent. And when people said, oh, but, but the Obama administration were giving Iran all, the, all this money on pallets flown into the country. Yeah, it was. Here's the issue. It's Iranian money. There's over $100 billion of Iranian money tied up inside Western banks that belongs to Iran. But the sanctions mean Iran can't get hold of that money. So when uh, Obama gave them whatever it was, $20 billion, and they flew it in on planes, because it's the only way they could give the Iranians the money that is actually Iran's money. And so it wasn't some dodgy backhanders given to anybody with regards to the deal. But again, because people believe in Obama or they believe in, in the Democrats or they believe in the Republicans, when they hear a story, if they're a Republican about the Democrats, oh, it must be true. Or if you're a Democrat, you hear the nonsense about Trump and Russiagate, well, it must be true. And of course, that was nonsense as well. So it's another example. Stop believing in, in, in this lunatic Demo Democrat, Republican political system because yeah, it's, it's a lie and it's bullshit.
it's it, and the worst part about it it's such a thin veneer filled with empty platitudes one of the things i want people to understand is this and this is very key very important because our country's in a in, in, is in a state of flux there's a state of chaos and how it's going to end up on the other side of it is going to depend wholly upon how the population responds a lot of us have a knee-jerk reaction. We are repeating axioms that we have no idea where we even got the axioms from because we heard it from somewhere else or someone else and we thought it was clever, so therefore we parrot it. If you take the time to, to, to read the Founding Fathers, they would be appalled at the type of government and the attitude of people today in this country. They would be absolutely appalled. When you read guys like Adams, John Quincy Adams, one of the things that they focus on is they had a deep, profound, concerned um, empathy. They had a concern for their fellow man. And, and I'm not going to get into the details because I'm going to have a guest on in the future uh, who's going to break this all down for you guys okay, and understand what real American history is all about. They were concerned about the plight of humans and humanity in places like in Asia, in India, in the Middle East, in North Africa, and in places like in Europe. They were concerned because they understood that they were fighting an international struggle between a unipolar system that was seeking to dominate the entire planet and a multipolar open system which the founding fathers were about. That was always been the war. And they were concerned because they understood that if such and such a country did does well and we trade with them, we benefit. If such and such a region does well and they prosper and we trade with them and help them, we benefit. That's mutually beneficial trade, a multipolar world, an open source system where every country modular, modularly can contribute to it. It's like a module. They attach their module, their systems. Nobody's dominating anybody. That was the system that sprung out of 1776. Let me explain something to most of you Americans who don't get this. 1776 never happened in a vacuum. There was a lot of things in the world that were occurring. Number one, the Russians were saving our ass. Catherine the Great kept the Brits tied up. There were situations happening in southern India. The Great Revolt in Mysore, the Mysorean Revolt that kept the Brits intact. Why? Because, and also what the French were doing. Why? Because these three regions understood what was happening in 1776 in the United States. Because they too believed in an open, multipolar system. Fast forward 200 years, folks. We are right back smack in the middle of it. Except this time around, we have taken the very attitudes of the very empire that we freed ourselves from. And we're following a failed model. And surprise, surprise, what some would call the Communist Chinese Party, and I think the biggest problem with the CCP is they have the word communist in there. They need to rebrand themselves. I think there was a doctor, I forgot what his name was. Uh, he said it best. It, sh it should be renamed the Chinese Civilization Party because they're a civilizational power. People don't understand that they're a meritocracy. In, in, in other words... The best and the brightest are called to run their systems, and the more efficient and, and better and, 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 more, and, and more beneficial for the people, those people, they get promoted. Shocking. I like when people tell, tell us, oh, the United States, they're trying to turn the United States into China light. 
I look at them as a brother. If you knew what China Light was and how fast things get fixed, you'd be shocked. You'd be shocked. Folks, we are again the world stage where we have a chance to be part of a multipolar, decentralized, open system of economic and trade with no domination. And the powers that be, head, headed by Western banks, are fighting, and, and, and then, of course, the military-industrial complex, and all these other Western bureaucracies and institutions are the ones fighting it, and they're brainwashing you. They're lying to you. They're giving you the, the red scare, the red surge, and they're lying to you about concentration camps in Shenzhen. They're lying to you about Putin. He's an, auto, oh, he's an autocratic god, a dictator. Folks, you have an entrenched kleptocratic plutocracy in power in the United States. And most of y'all are still stuck in Republican and Democrat. Most of y'all are still stuck in us versus them. Most of y'all are saying America first. You don't even know what the hell that means. You don't know what that means because you heard somebody else say it. When you study economic systems, you have to understand how precious the world... You know, the Chinese looked at 1776 and said, hey, we want that. And that's what the hell they're doing today. An open, multipolar system. And the same thing with the Russians. Same thing with... The, so 154 countries see it. And we're following a dead-end model by brain-dead politicians and bankers who are driving us off the cliff. Wake up, America. Wake up, Paul. No, well, absolutely. And, you know, and it, it's not something we're pleased to have to say but but the, the reality is the world now is the there's the old reality and then there's the new reality and the irony is is the one thing china copied from the united states was when it had a very successful economy when it got the balance right between state-owned enterprises and free market economy where and that's what China does. It looked at that when that was the halcyon days prior to, to, to 1913 or prior, you know, in the late sort of 1800s. I'm not the, equally the best person talking about the historical context of the US. But that was the halcyon era when the US economy was thriving, when it got the balance completely right. China looked at that and went, that's the model we need to adopt. And that's why it has state-owned enterprises. Why? Because it doesn't want them to become monopolies that dominate and dictate, you know, domestic and foreign policy. And that's exactly the failing of the United States now. And, you know, and there's a, it is true. There's a lot of people who, who have ideas about China. They've never been to China. They've never, never gone there. I've, I've been yeah, there. I've worked have ideas there. About Russia. Never been to Russia. Never, never do yeah. any business. They do a lot of business yeah. with Chinese companies. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, a lot of China, people are employed in in their own companies. They create their own small, medium enterprises in a completely free market sense where they're able to operate, function. The state doesn't get in the way of them. And then you have the, the big state-owned enterprises and including the banks. Why do, why do you think China has state-owned banks? So they don't go. They start to do things like reckless speculation as Western banks do. They go to the banks, you're stopping this. If you don't stop it, we'll shut you down or we'll curtail this activity. And if you... and whether people agree with this or not, if you commit heinous financial crimes in China, they execute people. And that's, that's a pretty extreme thing for most people to comprehend. And we're not condoning it or anything. That's the reality of how China operates. China doesn't operate how anyone in the West thinks, or the majority of people. 
especially people who've never been there. You want to go and see China, go and see it with your own eyes because you'll go there and go, I don't believe this. This country doesn't operate how I think it is. It's not a dictatorship. It's no, People aren't constrained in their houses and not allowed to go anywhere. 200 million Chinese go all over the world on holiday and return to the country. China is a one-party state. That is a very different model from what people, because people see that and go, that's anti-democratic. Well, well we, yeah, we they, have a one-party state here. People don't realize it. Yes, and that's, and that, that's point. And, and it, from the it, Chinese it, perspective, two parties, but there's only one state. It's called the deep state. Yeah, and Chinese people don't care that they don't get get to vote for them. All they care about is 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 our governance structure doing the things it said it would do, and it, and they do. They keep succeeding in doing it, and we need to accept the fact that there is a multipolar world. It doesn't matter whether we agree with it, disagree. It doesn't matter whether we agree with what China does or doesn't do. And, and it, China does things that we, in, the, in our eyes, we don't agree with. Chinese people like the system. And no, they're not beaten and bullied and, and coerced and threatened. You couldn't coerce and threaten 1.4 billion the, people. Paul, this is what blows my mind. Okay, this is, what blows, this is what blows the minds of most people. They can't even answer this. I'm not so they're a totalitarian regime similar to North Korea, you say. Yeah, they are, man. They're, you know, they're just like the North Koreans. They're totalitarian. Really? How come there's more billionaires and millionaires in China? Let's just say there's more millionaires and billionaires in Shenzhen, in Beijing, in Shanghai, than there is in New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles. Wait, how can you have a, a totalitarian system in millionaires and billionaires? There's more. There's more women billionaires in China than any place else in the world. Women billionaires. How? Wait a minute. Yes, <laughs> precisely. Dude, uh, Paul, here's the thing. I, I said earlier, I do a lot of business in China, right? The business that I do, these are all Western expats. So these are the guys that I do business with are guys who are libertarian, conservative, freedom-minded. And they're in Shenzhen, they're in Guangdong, they're in um, Shanghai. And if I ask any one of them, yo, uh, you want to come back here? Hell no is the answer. Why? Why is that? He's like, dude, you're not going to, and they always say, look, you're not going to understand it unless you're here. You're not going to get it unless you're here. And one of these days, I'm going to have some of these guys on to share because people don't know, man. Like, will they share videos and pictures? Paul, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Really? Wow, it's like that? I mean, I see stuff that, that in, in, from, in, from an infrastructure point of view, we look third world in comparison. Well, yeah, no, and, and, crazy. It's like Orwell's 1984. We're so, they have us so controlled the narrative. It's like most Westerners. When you think of India, you think of slumdog millionaire, right? You think of some poor slums. They're not showing you some of the most amazing, cleanest, advanced cities that you see in India. You don't see that crap. All you see, you, you just see some slum dogs. You see slums, people walking around, blah, blah, blah. Same thing in Africa. If I, if I mention Africa to an average American, they think one country and everybody's like herding goats. They have no idea. We're being played. We're being manipulated. We're having psychological warfare on our own population, and people don't have any clue, Paul. Well, well here's, here's the question that everyone should ask themselves. Most people in Western nations who, you know, people, okay, there's people who don't understand anything. They believe the government's legitimate, it's a democracy, and they're doing the best they can for the people. But those people listening clearly don't believe that. But the one thing they do believe, they don't trust their government as things stand. They don't trust it at all. So they don't trust the government at all. Why do they trust their government to tell them the truth? Correct. About what's going on in other nations. 
So apparently they lie to you about everything internally, but they tell you the truth about everything that's going on in other nations. Well, well uh, uh, in, of course, Nigeria, China, Russia, and Iran, and North Korea, and everything else. And, and here's, here's the point. Take an example with China. China has a centrally controlled government. It's a one-party state. No one's disputing that. Go to local government, and local governments are very democratic. Here's the interesting thing. People love to show pictures and, and, and videos of people demonstrating in parts of China. Well, it's kind of ironic that if they lived in a totalitarian dictatorship that killed everyone who protested, A, why are these people allowed to protest? That's the first question people should ask. Was it because it isn't? But what they don't also tell you is these people are protesting because the local governments that are democratic aren't doing the things they're supposed to do. And they're telling the central government to get in there and deal with the problem. And they get in there and they remove the guy. They remove the mayors, they remove governors, this, that, and the other. I want to touch base real quick on the whole social credit system. And I've, I've warned about social credit coming to the United States back in 2012 and how it's going to be an amalgam of, of your social media and all this other stuff. Let me explain something to you folks, okay? You have social credit here in the United States. Nicholas Fuentes, as I'm talking to you, is he's, he's just a, a conservative commentator, okay? This is a young kid. He's on a no-fly list. CJ, did this kid burn down the Capitol building? Did he kill somebody? CJ? I think CJ fell asleep again. <laughs> okay. Too many edibles. But, yeah, obviously, your point is, no, he did No, he didn't. The point is, he didn't. But he's on a no-fly list, right? How many people showed up to a Capitol protest on January the 6th, which, according to the, uh, the cardboard cutout-in-chief, the crash test dummy in the White House, according to him, was the greatest attack on democracy since the Civil War. What an asshole and an idiot. How, well, many, yes, absolutely. Uh, how many people were put on those fly, on no-fly lists? Several. How many people were deplatformed, debanked, where bank accounts were closed, you were not allowed to bank, and now they're, 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 they're blackballed from banking, they can't even open up a bank account anywhere? Folks, you have social credit here. So what's the difference between the Chinese one? Let me tell you how the Chinese one works. The one in China... And let me explain something before I begin. As somebody who's you know dealt with people with credit issues, and I, I refer people to you know to credit rep- uh, referral companies with really no kickback, I'll just do it just so people get their credits fixed and this, that, and the other. Folks, you fall through the hole here, you go through bankruptcy, you're finished. You understand? You you screw up your credit in the United States, you are done. You are finished. There's no recourse for you. Well, I'm going to go through debt consolidation. It's as, just as bad as a bankruptcy going through debt consolidation. That's the fact that nobody tells you about. So let me tell you how the China thing works, because there's a lot of confusion here, because you have a lot of spin, especially by idiots from Epoch Times and, and all that other BS stuff, right? So this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from you from the Stanford study. There was a study done by Stanford about the China social credit system. You know how it works? First of all, if you do something, let's just say you don't pay a creditor back, you take out more money than you could actually afford, and you don't pay it back, guess what? Um, they take you to court, and it's through a court system that you have these things done uh, that, you know, you, you have to stand trial and you, you, you get a mark against you. And guess what? Now you're going to have some of your privileges take away, which I'm not a fan of the social credit system. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm a freewheeling free market capitalist. I, have, I, I don't care for it. I, I, I want the least amount of government control as possible. But that's their culture. That's how they work. But here's the funny thing. Somebody in China who cannot no longer travel on a, on a high-speed bullet train, you can't get on a flight, you'd have to drive everywhere, this, that, and the other. What happens is that person has the ability to pay it back. 
He's able to pay off the debt and or do community service, like do a good deed, clean up your street, help an old lady cross the street, you know, bag groceries for old people, volunteer your time with kids or, or, or the elderly or the needy population. There's a wide variety of things that you could do, and if you do it, your score goes right back up. So it's a far cry from, from the black mirror. It's, see, the Western guys, right, the Western countries, they love that aspect of it because they think of that in the most nefarious of ways, number one. In the West, this social credit stuff is being, is, is being shoved down your throat without any sort of input from you, right? Whereas in China, the social crisis was actually voted upon and decided by the population there. Surprise, surprise. So it's kind of shocking, which in, in the Western mindset, well, I, I don't want all this monitoring, all the surveillance. But at the same time, you're creating a, for them, and it works for them. And again, I'm no fan of it, but for them, it, it works for them and their cultural outlook. Folks, you got to understand, it's a different worldview, number one. And number two, the great thing is they're not, and they never have been, wanting to foist their cultural uh, particularities, their cultural and worldview on the rest of the world. China's not going to Africa and be like, hey, you need to be more Chinese. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. No, but you know what? You you make two absolutely critical points, and and it's great you have. The first thing is, it's not about us agreeing with it, but the one thing is, the Chinese people like this system. It actually hasn't even been rolled out totally yet by any stretch of the magic. But the Chinese people like this because they don't think like we do. You can't apply our mindset to, or Western mindset to how Chinese people. They have a completely different set of values, and they're quite happy with this. And no, they're not happy with it because they're forced to, because if they don't, they'll be disappear off into some gulag never to be seen again. Again, just nonsense. Yep. And the other point you absolutely make is, China, the big fear that people are being engendered in, in Western nations, and particularly in the U.S., is, well, it, it's it's a com competition between if we don't win in America and China wins, which is not the case, but let's just use that analogy, then if China wins, they're going to come into our country, they're, they're going to over. enforce totalitarianism, they're, gonna rape they're going women. to make you have a social credit system. Like, and look, here's the logic. When is China going to literally come and invade the United States and impose its will on the U.S.? Really, this is not. They haven't done it to Mozambique, let alone Michigan. When, when I mean, when did where? You're right. The China is never going to do that. China says we'll do things our way. We're not going to tell you what to yeah. do. And well, and Varoufakis made a great point when he he said there was the, the Chinese deal for the Port of Piraeus, and when he was in the, in the Greek government, he he turned around and he got them in a meeting and he said, "Look, I don't agree with this agreement for the Piraeus port." I want all these things changing. And they said, okay, fine, we'll change them. And he was yep. really surprised. I went, hey, hang on. He said, imagine doing that with the Americans if Can't you went it. into a deal. Can't the Americans, had, had, in two days, you'd be overthrown and the Greek government would collapse. Exactly. That's the difference. That's the that difference. Is different. And, and Paul, I'll close with this because we've got to end because uh, we have a hard stop coming mm -hmm. up. But uh, the, the point is this. The Public Works Minister for Liberia said it best. We do business with China for the first time Africa as a continent sees many of its resources leaving our great lands and something built in return. For the first time in our history, we have roads, bridges, tunnels, infrastructure, high-speed rail, and all our capitals are being connected. And that's because of China. The West never did that. America's answer is AFRICOM. Folks, check him out, SeriousReport.com. TheSeriousReport.com for less than five bucks a day. I'm sorry, five bucks a month. You can get yourself. <laughs> 475 for less than five dollars a month. 
Get yourself a daily report, daily dose of Paul. Go check it out, seriousreport.com. We have a hard stop. Sorry for the lateness, Paul. I apologize for coming on no, late. No, don't worry. It's okay. Don't worry. It's we'll fine. do this again next week, so keep it locked. Yes. here. Subscribe, like, comment, share, and wake up, folks. Wake up. CJ, take it away. Whew. All right, guys. We'll see. You guys can keep chatting if you want. Yeah, I we'll keep go. chatting. Right, bye. Bye. Later. Okay. I don't think CJ cut the feed. It's still live. CJ, still live. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we still live? I think we are. Oh, oh. God. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't cut the feed. No. We're still live. I'm, I'm texting right now. Hold on. Okay. I mean, we can keep talking. I, I got time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. Let's see. Wait, I don't know if we are. I don't know. Is well, maybe is anyone out there? Are we live? Can someone in the? Yeah, we're still chat... live. Jesus. Yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> well, look. It, the point with regards to 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 the U.S. is and. And how it needs to fundamentally change. It needs to lose the mindset of uh, of the old, what I call this, this old reality and the new reality. And the new reality is the U.S. has the capability to be this fantastic nation amongst equals, which the world will respect. The U.S. has the capability to make those changes where it would need to reform everything, not just its governance structure, the financial system, its education, healthcare its attitude towards uh, innovation, research, development, and everything. The problem the U.S. has suffered from for decades is no one gave a damn about the United States in turn. The idea was, well, it'll just kind of function. It, it won't be a it's problem. 